1909 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Brought to you by Brilliance Audio. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I am the editor of several anthologies, such as Wastelands and The Living Dead. Um, my latest books are The Living Dead 2 and The Way of the Wizard, and I also edit the magazines uh, Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazine. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. Uh, my short stories appear in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and Fantasy the Best of the Year. And my newest stories are Cats and Victory in Lightspeed, The Skullface City in The Living Dead 2, and Family Tree in The Way of the Wizard. And today we'll be interviewing Charles Yu, author of the short story collection Third Class Superhero and the novel How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. In 2007, he was selected by the National Book Foundation as one of its five most promising writers under 35. And uh, here's a description of the novel. This is from Lev Grossman's Amazon.com review. He says, The hero of this story, also named Charles Yu, ekes out a living as a time travel repairman. Charles is a high-tech sad sack whose only companions are a dog, who's mostly hypothetical, and a computer with a sexy feminine AI interface that Yu has a crush on. Human beings mostly use time machines to go back and eavesdrop on their own screwed-up lives, reliving key moments, bad decisions, and missed opportunities, in the mistaken belief that they can change them. They can't. Yu's elderly mom is parked in a time loop, where she cooks a Sunday dinner over and over again. His father, a tragically frustrated inventor, is lost somewhere in the chronoverse, and Yu has a problem. One day, he accidentally ran into his future self and shot him. And one day, the laws of the universe dictate that future self will be him. How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe is a triumph, as good as anything in Calvino or Stanislaw Lem. I wish I could travel back in time with a copy and fraudulently publish it under my own name. Yeah, I really liked the, the book as well, and so I was glad to see uh, Lev Grossman give it that good review. Um, it'll do a lot more than uh, me saying it's good. But um, anyway, um, yeah, some uh, a bit of uh, show business. Um, just uh, We just want to point out that uh, over on our website, geeksguideshow.com, um, we now have a list of all of our past guests. Um, so if you click on guests over there on the right sidebar, you can just see um, all of the different authors we've interviewed. And so if you want to decide to listen to a show based on uh, the guest, you can just, uh, you know, sort of browse through there. We also, it also lists some upcoming guests and, um, you know, uh, some of the, some of those guests, we still haven't interviewed them yet. So um, it's, you know, it's possible you can suggest interview questions. We also want to just remind everybody that commenting on the show, um, if you like it, uh, you should comment over on io9 and also that we are currently accepting PayPal donations. So if uh, you like the show and you want to help support it, um, you can go to our website and uh, click on the PayPal link and just uh, you know donate whatever you like. All right, well, let's crank up the time machine and go back to last week and get Charles Yu on the phone. Hello? Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks for joining us on the show. Sure. Uh, okay, so uh, first of all, what are uh, some of the books you read when you were younger that inspired you to want to become a writer yourself? I did read Asimov's Foundation series when I was when I was a kid, and that was definitely something that turned me on to the idea of building a whole world, how broad the canvas could be if you if you tried for it. Another thing I read, or another series I read, was Piers Anthony series um, Incarnations of Immortality. He wrote seven books. Each one centered around like a personification of, you know, of a concept, I guess, or an abstraction. So the first one's about death, and then he goes through all seven, and eventually I think the seventh one is about God. Those were fascinating to me, too, because it was this sort of really high concept idea, you know, imagining what it would be like to actually be that abstraction. Okay, so your bio in The Guardian describes you as a director at Digital Domain, the Oscar-winning visual effects and animation company set up by James Cameron to create state-of-the-art digital imagery for feature films. Could you tell yeah. us about that? <laughs> uh, I wish I were a director. Uh, I mean, technically, that's, that is correct, but I'm actually a director in the business affairs department, which means I'm a lawyer there. So it's <laughs> a lot less sexy than it sounds. <laughs> so that is my day job. I work for that company, and James Cameron was basically one of the founders and former owners of that company. He's no longer involved with it, but um, the company is still obviously uh, one of the leading visual effects services providers. Recently did um, effects for um, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which won the Oscar for, for visual effects, which is pretty awesome. And it's a great place to work, and there's amazingly creative people there and smart people, and, and then there's me as a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> 
who does the contracts for all of that stuff. And it's, it's a fun job. I really like the people I work with, and I think it's neat to be a part of a company like that. It's so, pretty awesome that the company is so creative that they even have uh, really awesome writers in their business affairs department. <laughs> yeah, I was like, can I have a creative job? They're like, you're not creative enough. You <laughs> um, okay, so uh, your first book was the short story collection, Third Class Superhero. Uh, so tell us, uh, what exactly is a third class superhero? The specific third class superhero I wrote about was a guy named Moisture Man. <laughs> and um, his power, if you can call it that, is that he's able to take approximately two gallons of moisture, you know, ambient moisture from the air, and shape it into a ball or maybe like a water fountain. And, you know, it's not a super useful power for defeating villains and not useful for helping people in trouble usually, but, you know, mostly just for, like, refreshment of the other group members. And so he's basically been trying to get into the guild for going on nine years. And the, the story starts with him having received his rejection letter for superhero stats for the ninth consecutive year. That's what a third-class superhero is. It's, it's the bottom rung of superherodom in this world. Uh, so uh, would you describe your short fiction as, quote-unquote, experimental? And could you talk about some of the more unusual approaches you use and why you chose to use them? Uh, I would describe it as experimental, and I probably my publisher, not my current one, but my first one probably wouldn't want me to, you know, because that is always a scary word, but I think, you know, I'm, I'd love to open something up and see wacky stuff on the page, you know, just like, that's exciting, and not just visually, obviously, but also in terms of form and structure and thematic content, so I, I think, you know, the stories in Third Class Superhero, pretty much all of them are experiments. There's a story that's basically just a set of physics problems. And through the set of physics problems, you learn about this family and specifically this kind of marriage that's been, you know, a troubled marriage through the decades. There's another story that is about an imaginary scientific field called emotional statistics, written sort of in the voice of a pseudoscientific paper. There's another one that's in the form of kind of a play script, I guess. And the idea in that is that there's a family, again, it's a mother and son specifically, and they live in a world in which their lives are a TV show, basically. I've never been able to write something straight. I'll do it, and I'll look at it, and it just dies on the page for me. I can't get it going. It's not interesting to me. And I know if it's not interesting to me, it's not going to be interesting to anyone else. Things usually don't start to take off a little bit for me until I do something weird to it, and I feel like I'm kind of cheating or messing around. You said you've received about 500 rejection letters in your writing career. Um, were any of those rejections particularly memorable, uh, either harsh or helpful? I, I did get a letter once from a woman named Adrian Miller, who at the time was the fiction editor of Esquire magazine. And that was crazy because I don't think I'd had a story published anywhere by at that point. Maybe I'd had one story published. And she actually wrote a handwritten letter on, you know, like Esquire letterhead. And I just carried that thing around for <laughs> two weeks, you know, put it in my pocket. I carried it to work. She basically said, you know, I really like your voice and I hope you keep sending things. And that was like permission for me to just keep sending things, not just to her, but everywhere. Because you know, at that point, I'd probably already gotten maybe 100 rejection letters. My ratio is about 50 rejection letters per story. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was a point where I was kind of like, man, this is a lot. You know? <laughs> like, I was expecting a lot, but this is really a lot and I'm not really getting much feedback. And so that was you know, it, it felt like a um, sign from above, like to keep trying, I guess. Okay, so, uh, you know, different time travel stories have different rules. You know, so sometimes you can change the past and sometimes you can't. And sometimes there's one timeline and sometimes there are multiple ones. Uh, what are the rules of time travel in your novel and how did you go about deciding what those rules should be? The basic rule is um, you cannot change the past. I mean, you can change the past, I guess, in the sense that you can go back into a previous time and do something different, but then you're no longer in the timeline that you that you initially were. You've now moved into an alternate timeline. And the framework I was using was the idea of a quantum multiverse, I guess, that there are all these, you know, this uncountably large number, possibly infinite number of alternate universes, some of which are virtually identical to ours. They might be different in like the position of, you know, or the spin of one particle or something, but some of which are quite different. But anyway, there's this huge branching structure of alternate universes and we're in just one of them. But if you want to stay in yours, you definitely cannot go back in the past and change your past. That's the only really sort of rigid rule that I had because the the nature of the time travel in, in the novel, How to Live Safely, is 
you know, it's time travel that's based on language and specifically on grammar. You know, the, the machine that Charles Yu, the character, travels around in the TM31 recreational time travel device has a grammar drive. So basically he sets the, you know, the gear shift into one of various settings and that's what takes him to the future of the past. So it's a vehicle for him moving around within a story space using memory and regret to go into the past using you know, anticipation and anxiety to go into the future. Uh, so the setting of the book is also fairly unusual. Can you tell us a bit about that? Basically, you've got this large media conglomerate called Time Warner Time. <laughs> it was probably, you know, at one point just a cable company, but it got so big and it eventually merged with Google and becomes this huge conglomerate that controls space-times. So they build these space-times, and there are really big, successful ones but there's also ones that, you know, like any construction project, some of them just don't go well. And so Universe 31 was one of them. It, they were building it initially. It was supposed to be this kind of retail commercial space that also has some residential units, kind of a mixed-use space. But it gets damaged while it's being created, and um, they abandon it, basically. So it's this unfinished universe that the people inside, they know it. You know, they know that they're in a place that really isn't, finished and they can feel that that feeling kind of permeates throughout the cosmos here and then you know it's a minor universe too i mean within even had it been finished it was never intended to be this great grand place it was kind of this smaller more modest place and it's also a place where other universes even kind of like use it as like a storage closet they like dump their junk into this universe so what you get is you get the cast-offs from other stories from like Large space operas will, like, not need some of their characters or their ships anymore. You know, things get outdated or retconned. They'll just dump it into Universe 31 because you're allowed to do that. So how much science research did you do, and uh, were there any science books that helped inspire you uh, specifically? I mean, I did do a little bit about time travel and specifically what, not that I could understand the physics or math of it, but <laughs> Kurt Gödel had found solutions to Einstein's gravitational field equations where he she showed that in this really kind of like esoteric hypothetical universe that's basically rotating that there could be a form of time travel that would be consistent with general relativity which is a fascinating idea just just that it's even a mathematical solution to einstein's equations was kind of mind-blowing for me and to me i don't know why but the idea that it's at least a theoretical possibility in our universe was important and i think it's because I wanted to feel like the speculation was grounded in something sciencey, <laughs> which is really silly, but I did. I mean, I, I just wanted to feel like I'm going to take this science and totally distort it, you know, and I'm, I'm using it, you know, for the story's purposes. I'm not even really trying to do any kind of like hard or even hard-ish sci-fi here. I'm, I'm clearly like going to, to warp this to my own purposes, but I loved that there was something that, you know, there was a kernel of science at, at the root of this. Another book that I had read way back when I was in law school, and, and I reread it a couple of times while writing this book, was um, Ib Deutsch's The Fabric of Reality. He's basically weaving strands of, like, you know, the philosophy of knowledge with quantum mechanics, with evolution, with, you know, the holographic principle and computation theory, and none of which I understand. <laughs> but he he writes in such a way that it feels like you can kind of understand it. And he just talks about, I mean, really, literally, what is the nature of reality? He's trying to get at that question. Uh, so the protagonist of the novel is also named Charles Yu. What are the similarities and differences between you and your character? He is roughly the same in disposition, which is to say pessimistic, neurotic, prone to melancholy and depression. He's and this is going to sound super self-serving, but he's much more self-absorbed than the real Charles Yu, actually. <laughs> and and I'm saying that partly in in my own defense as a physical person, um, because I I think he is clearly a self-absorbed person and self-sistic even you know. But but that's kind of the point of the book. This guy lives in the universe, but he also lives basically in his own head, you know, and there's times where the metaphor of the universe and, and the time machine and his own consciousness are supposed to all kind of overlap, and there's supposed to be some, a sort of conflation of those spaces, you know, his interior space 
inside his own head and body, inside his machine, and inside this kind of claustrophobic feeling universe. So he is very self-absorbed. I, I think I'm not quite that self-absorbed. <laughs> and, um, but he he can't get over his kind of childhood and, and how his parents' marriage has sort of turned out. And also his dad is gone. So, you know, that's, those are key differences. In, in real life, my parents are basically happy people, and I had a very happy, fulfilling childhood in which I got to, you know, read lots of books and, you know, wasn't lonely all the time. And I have a brother, and Charles, you in the book, doesn't have a brother. And, um, you know, my brother and I are very close. So I think the Charles, you in the book is probably a sadder and um, more self-absorbed version, I, I hope, of the real Charles, you. <laughs> Did you ever have a moment where you had real second thoughts about naming the character after yourself? I really did wrestle with it, and I really did change parts of the book or take out things that felt too close, you know, to autobiography. I, and I think after the publication, I have, I've had, I don't want to say regrets, but certainly, you know, it, people obviously focus on, focus on it, and rightly so. I mean, if somebody named the character after themselves, they deserve to be asked why you, why they would do that. And um, the reactions mostly fall into two categories. One, which is, why did you do that? And then the answer is really that it was a placeholder, but then the writing flowed after I stuck that name in so well that I had to leave it in really because it felt wrong to rip it out at that point. You know, and, and then, and then when people get that answer, they're like, oh, okay, so it was kind of an accident of the writing process. And, you know, you, for whatever reason, you felt like you couldn't take it out afterwards. The other reaction, I think this is more common, at least judging by things I've seen, you know, in the blogosphere or Amazon reviews. Is like people think I must be the most egotistical self-absorbed <laughs> person in the world, but then again, if you look at the guy, he's he's not exactly like a world beater, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not sure that naming a character after yourself when the character is kind of a you know, sad sack is really egotistical. It might be it might be self-absorbed, but not egotistical. <laughs> okay, so what are some of your favorite time travel stories? Right, I'm going to give you the basically the top two. The first is not a book; it's a movie. It's Primer. Uh, you guys, have you both seen it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you a fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> I mean, movie. I, I actually I actually watched it twice back-to-back when I watched it first time because I was like, that's a, I, I need to see that again. Uh, yeah, I've watched it a couple times, and I don't understand it any better. And I swear, <laughs> I don't know if it was io9, but some big blog actually mapped out what they thought were, like, the nine timelines. And um, that really feels like this thought experiment. I love the the rigor of it in a way, and also the simplicity of it. You know, you don't really care too much about who these dudes are, right? They're really generic. Their clothes are, and some of this might have been a function of the the budget. Like he did this on this amazing shoestring budget, like what seven thousand dollars or something, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the the sets, you know, I mean, it just looks like. Well, I don't even know if they're sets. They're just like you know the, the hotel room or the motel room and the, the guy's garage, and that simplicity of just like imagine it, it just makes it this really pure kind of examination or or even like um experiment almost you know like let's put these characters in this situation and give them time travel and see what they're going to do the other thing i love about it is that it's not mushy at all and that's funny maybe not funny but it's weird coming from you know me who were like super sentimental mushy like sort of time travel story about a guy and his dad but those guys are like jerks you know what i mean they use time travel to do like jerky things and like of course that's what people would do right i mean most likely if you had time travel you would do jerky things you wouldn't go and like hug your dad like you do you know the guy doesn't like maybe you would most, most people would but i love that you know it's like there's an edge to the characters you know it there's just not one ounce of any kind of sentiment in there it's like what is the sort of baser instinct that would take over probably if you had this incredible ability um, and the second is um, Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, you know, I, it, it's not probably thought of primarily in the time travel book because that's, you know, the mechanism of time travel isn't really discussed, right? It's just he's unstuck, right? He's kind of moving around. But that, in a lot of ways, I think, informed my thinking when I was writing this book, just the idea of, of being able to move freely about your own life. You know, if your own life is this span what if you could just move around within that span, not before it, not after it, but you could just move around in that space-time only. And since this is the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, we have to ask, have you read Douglas Adams? I have. I haven't read every Douglas Adams book, but I've read Hitchhiker's Guide and Restaurant. Douglas Adams, I think, just sort of 
lives in my head probably more through like secondary influence. You know, I mean, he just had such a huge influence on so many other people. I'm sure I'm influenced by him in ways that I don't even know. But but I have read Douglas Adams, and I think he's amazing. Are there are there any books you can think of that aren't typically shelved in the science fiction section of the bookstore, but uh, you you think would appeal to science fiction readers? One author I really like is George Saunders, and I've talked about him probably. It feels like a lot. His first two story collections, Pastoralia and Civil War, Land and Bad Decline, are, you know, there's these sort of dystopian satires, I guess. And they could be in science fiction, except that they're not. Um, so one of your stories just appeared in Lightspeed Magazine. Uh, can you tell us a, a little bit about the story and why people should go check it out? Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, it is The story is called Standard Loneliness Package, and it is the first story I've ever had. Um, hopefully not the last, but definitely the first. So it's a big deal for me um, in what I guess would be a science fiction magazine. And it's, the story is about a guy who works at an emotional transference firm, which is to say he, he basically, he's in India, and in, in the world of the story, the technology exists that you can send over parts of your life, you know, unpleasant experiences. You can outsource those so somebody else can feel them for you. So, like, if you know you're going to have this dentist appointment, for instance, you can schedule that dentist appointment, then you call up your firm and you say, from 1 to 2 on Thursday, you know, I need to book an hour. And what will happen is basically that during that time, you will experience some placeholders, some like pleasant Muzak type experience, right? That's fake. And the bad experience that you're actually undergoing will be like packetized and sent over to India where it'll be downloaded and somebody will feel that for you. So it's told from the experience, from the perspective of the people who have to do this crappy job. And, um, you know, this guy's been working here for a while and he tells you sort of what it's like to work there. And then through the story, he meets a woman and he starts to imagine what it would be like to, you know, have his own life instead of having to feel other people's crappy lives all the time. So uh, what are you working on now and what should people keep an eye out for in the future? I'm working on a novel, mostly. And the novel is like so early on. I mean, I've got a little bit of it, enough that I feel like I'm probably not going to just delete it all tonight. <laughs> That's always possible. And then the other thing I'm working on is this kind of idea that I think could take a serial form. It doesn't come out of the plot of How to Live Safely, but it does kind of spin out of one of the ideas there. Could you elaborate? What do you mean by serial form? Well, I mean, I don't know, you know, if I would just do a bunch of short stories or if I, I mean, I've thought about maybe trying to, I don't, I can't draw, but I thought it'd be kind of neat to maybe do it in a graphic form somehow online, but I don't, I'd have to know somebody who could draw. And I do, I mean, I know people who are artists, but I haven't really gotten to that point yet. I'm still kind of thinking of it as an idea that would take place in, you know, sort of a bunch of shorter pieces instead of one long thing. So, uh, Charles Yu, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Charles Yu for joining us on the show. Uh, so now John and I are going to be chatting a little bit about some of our favorite time travel stories. Uh, and we'll get to that right after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, The Rebel Prince by Celine Kiernan. Winter Moorhawk has braved bandits and loop gurus to find her way to Alberon, the exiled rebel prince. But now that she's there, she will learn firsthand that politics is a deadly mistress. With the king and his heir on the edge of war and alliances made with deadly enemies, the kingdom is torn not just by civil war, but strife between the various factions as well. Winter knows that no one has the answer to the problems that plague the kingdom, and she knows that their differences will not just tear apart her friends, but the kingdom as well. An unabridged recording of The Rebel Prince by Celine Kiernan, narrated by Kate Rudd. Available now from Brilliance Audio, and wherever audiobooks are sold. And we're back. Okay, so um, yeah, so when you think about time travel stories, of course, one of the first things that comes to mind is The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Uh, this is sort of an attack on the British class system, and in it a guy invents a time machine and travels into the future 
and discovers that the human race has divided into two distinct species, where the upper class has evolved into the LOI, who are sort of beautiful and fragile and useless, and the lower classes have evolved into the Morlocks, who are sort of brutal and monstrous and uh, live underground and uh, only come out at night to eat the LOI. This was actually, they just made a movie uh, out of this in 2002. It uh, wasn't really good, but um, I had a couple interesting things. They, they changed the story quite a bit. Um, in this one, uh, the time traveler, his wife is, is killed, and he uh, invents the time machine so that he can travel back in time and save her. And so he tries doing that, but then she just dies in another similar accident shortly thereafter. And he realizes that since uh, he would only have invented the time machine and gone back in time to save her if she had died, that he can only use the time machine to travel back to timelines in which she's destined to die. So that was kind of an interesting idea. The movie also has a, a part where overzealous mining on the moon causes the moon to break apart, which is pretty hard to believe, but uh, I don't know, it was a cool visual. Anyway, getting back to the novel, I mean, one way in which it's been really influential is uh, toward the end, the time traveler travels far, far into the future and witnesses sort of the last days of life on Earth. Um, when sort of the only life on Earth is are these sort of big trilobite kind of things on the beach, and uh, the sun is red and going out, and uh, and so that's that's been very influential. Um, there's actually sort of a whole subgenre called the dying Earth subgenre, which is are sort of stories built around a similar idea. Sort of uh, classic examples of that would be like the Zothique Cycle by Clark Ashton Smith, and um, Jack Vance's Dying Earth, and uh, Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. Also, uh, Matthew Hughes uh, has the series called The Archinate, um, in which uh, is basically very influenced by Jack Vance in particular, but uh, it's also that same, same sort of dying earth situation. Another time travel story I read as a kid that really stuck with me was this one by Asimov called uh, Robot Dreams. And um, in this story, some scientists invent time travel. And, you know, they, they feel like they can't send anyone into the past because that might mess up the timeline and stuff. But they figure, uh, well, why not send somebody into the future and sort of see how things turn out? Um, but, of course, they have no idea what the future is going to be like. So they, they get a robot. You know, they like, send the robot. You know, what can go wrong? Uh, so, so they send this robot, and the robot comes back and reports that uh, life in the future is great, that, you know, that there's no disease and everyone's healthy and happy and there's world peace and, and everything. And... You know, the people were really nice, and they sort of showed him all around and gave him a tour of the world, and he's just seen uh, how nice everything is. And so after the scientists hear this, they conclude that uh, they're going to have to destroy their time machine because, you know, given that they know now how great everything turns out, they can't risk uh, any other trips into the future or anything that might uh, might mess up the timeline and, and prevent this, this fantastic future from coming about. And so, but then at the end, uh, you know, the main character is, is a robot, and he's a robot who, who looks human. And he realizes that actually what they've seen is a vision of a future in which humanity has gone extinct and only the robots, uh, you know, who look like people are left. And that's why there's peace and, and everyone seems uh, healthy and stuff. Uh, but he decides he's just going to keep this to himself, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, the one um, the one way I could see is time travel being possible is with the, you know, sort of idea of parallel worlds you know, or the multiverse where, you know, if you go back in time, and you and you change things. I mean, I, I guess just the act of going back in time would actually cause the, you know, cause the timeline to diverge. I mean, because you can't go back in time. You could you couldn't go back in time and not change anything. I mean, just the presence of the extra matter or whatever you think would 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 change something. Yeah, I mean, like there's this really famous Ray Bradbury story called The Sound of Thunder, where you know people go back in time to hunt dinosaurs, um, but they only uh, sort of shoot the dinosaurs at the moment that they were going to die anyway, so it doesn't uh, change the future. And, uh, and they're supposed to stay on this path so that they don't uh, harm anything else. And one of the guys kind of steps off the path and uh, steps on a butterfly. And when he gets back to his own time, he finds that things are, uh, are completely different and a lot worse um, because uh, of the ripple effects that this butterfly's death has caused throughout the timeline. And yeah, it's always, it's always seemed to me that like, you wouldn't even have to step on a butterfly, like you're saying, just the extra matter or, or whatever, that any change, no matter how seemingly insignificant, would, would just completely change the timeline. I mean, it, it seems like really that a lot of time travel stories just completely ignore this, where, you know, if you go back in time and change things, some huge proportion of the population who existed in your own time is going to be gone now and is going to have been replaced by different people. Uh, and so, I mean, are you just committing mass murder by any sort of uh, 
changes to the timeline. That is problematic. See, that's why you would need some sort of temporal uh, police to, to keep track of that thing and then, uh, you know, prosecute such offenders. Um, although, how do you prosecute somebody who, uh, who you know, murdered billions of people or caused them to cease to exist? And, and how does the temporal police operate outside the confines of time? That's why it's like time travel. It's like it, it's, it's, it's thought of as a science fictional trope, but it kind of seems more like it must be fantasy, you know, because, I mean, in order to make any of it work, there's so much that you just have to allow the, the waving of the hands to distract you from what's going on, uh, uh, you know, logically. Yeah, I mean, like one issue that sort of gets hand waved like that a lot is the issue of your physical location, because, you know, usually in time travel stories, if you travel back in time, you end up in exactly the same place on Earth as where you departed from. Um, but of course, you know, like the Earth is flying through space. And so a lot of people will say, well, wait, if you were to travel back an hour in time, even, wouldn't you just be out in the middle of deep space? Because the Earth wouldn't be in the same location as, as when you departed. And so actually a couple of stories have kind of made use of that. Um, I guess in the 2000 AD comic Strontium Dog, uh, Johnny Alpha uses time bombs. And these are bombs that you sort of throw them at somebody and they explode and anyone in range kind of gets bumped a few seconds into the future. And, and like I was just saying, that has the effect of sort of transporting them out into deep space and, and killing them. There's actually also a, a Clark Ashton Smith story called The Letter from Mohan Los, where a guy travels like a million years into the future and uh, ends up on an alien planet because this alien planet now occupies the same physical space that Earth had occupied in his own time. And uh, I think that's a really cool idea that, you know, <laughs> the, the easiest way to get from one planet to another might actually just be to travel in time rather than to try to travel through space. Yeah, you know, and I mean, um, you know, when we're discussing, um, you know, time travel sort of seeming like it must be impossible, but I mean, of course, there are there are ways where it would definitely be possible. It's just that it's only possible to move forward in time, and it's not really time travel per se, but it, it basically is as far as the, the person involved is, is concerned. Because, you know, with like general relativity, you know, once you start moving at uh, relativistic speeds and whatnot, and, you know, if you're on a spaceship or whatever, it's like, you know, time would travel uh, uh, more quickly on Earth than it would for you on the spaceship. And so, like, you know, you could sort of, um, when you get back to Earth, it's like you would still be young, but, like, you know, all this time would have been passed on, uh, uh, passed on Earth. And, of course, then, you, you know, there's things like, you know, um, suspended animation or whatever. And so, um, you know, it's like you're frozen in time, basically, and then you're just, you know, uh, awoken after a lot of time has passed, you know, in the outside world. And so, in effect, that's time travel. Yeah, I mean, and that's actually kind of like a whole subgenre, too, uh, the sort of sleeper wakes subgenre um, where somebody in the present has themselves placed in suspended animation somehow and, and wakes up in the future. Uh, there was an H.G. Wells novel called The Sleeper Wakes, which is, uh, you know, where that name comes from. But even like, you know, there was even like this persistent urban legend that like Walt Disney had his head frozen in hopes of having it, uh, you know, revived by advanced future technology someday. Although as, uh, you know, Larry Niven points out in his story, uh, The Defenseless Dead, what happens in that story is that there are all these people who had themselves frozen, you know, in the past in hopes of having their illnesses cured and having the problems of the world solved in the meantime and, and living in a better future. And what happens is that, is that the people in the future start waking up some of these people and just find that they're just completely worthless. You know, they don't know, they don't have any of the skills they need to survive in the future. And uh, they just kind of become a drain on society. And so the society of the future decides that rather than waking up any of these people, they're just going to raid them and take all their organs and, you know, use them all as uh, organ donors. So I guess, you know, if you place yourself in suspended animation, you don't know uh, what people in the future uh, might do with you. And I mean, and that's assuming to start with that things are even more advanced in the future than they are now. Uh, there's a whole subgenre too of stories in which uh, you know a person from the present wakes up in the future and uh, and everyone in the future is a lot less intelligent. Um, this the sort of uh, classic example of this was uh, a story called The Marching Morons by Cyril Cornbluth. Um, you know, sort of the idea is that the smarter people seem to have fewer children and the dumber people seem to have more children. And and if you follow that to its logical conclusion, a couple hundred years down the line, you just end up with a human population that's uh, significantly less intelligent than we are now. Uh, the same uh, idea was used in a movie called Idiocracy. Uh, so like in that movie, uh, they're doing experiments in cryogenics and they, uh, the army takes the most average guy in the army because uh, they just want to use him as a test subject. And he's supposed to be in suspended animation for a year. And then there's just kind of like a bureaucratic screw up and he ends up in suspended animation for like 500 years or something. 
and when, and when he wakes up, he finds that he's now the most intelligent man on earth, you know, and that just being able to solve a math problem like two plus three equals five qualifies him as a super genius. I definitely actually do recommend watching this movie. It's it's not a great movie. It's sort of, you know, there's about 40 minutes worth of jokes in an hour and a half long movie, but uh, it's it's sort of this unforgettable vision of this future. I actually, I saw this movie recently. It appeared on a list of the scariest Halloween movies, even though it's ostensibly a comedy, but its portrayal of just a, you know, society run by idiots just strikes a little too close to home. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I was just thinking of this, uh, this, this novel by Robert J. Sawyer named, uh, called Starplex. And I mean, it's not really about time travel, but, um, you know, there's, there's all these wormholes like throughout the galaxy, uh, that, that we've discovered and, and like they're, they seem to have been constructed and, and we don't know where they came from. And, uh, you know, eventually at some point, um, the, the characters need to, uh, send a message to whoever is, has built these things who's built these uh, wormholes uh, these, and they seem to be from the future. And so they're like, well, how do we get the message to them? It's like, we, we don't have time travel. And, and they realize, well, actually we kind of do because, you know, we're traveling into the future at one second at a time. And so all they have to do to send a, a message to the future is like build a time capsule, basically, you know, just build something that will last thousands of years or however, however far in the future, these, uh, uh, you know, these entities have come from uh, or, or where they exist. You know, all they had to do is build something that's going to last the test of time, and, and then that way uh, their message will be received. That, that kind of reminds me of how, like, when I was in college, there was this sort of chain email thing going around where it was like, hey, do you want to meet a time traveler? So do I. But think about it. These time travelers have, like, all of history and all the world to choose from. So how do we know where they're going to be and um, what's going to convince them to come visit us? And so this letter is like, so what we have to do is just make sure that we get a message out into the future to all the time travelers to like come to this particular place at this particular time. And there was like a, you know, a specific time and place listed and like make it clear that this is going to be just the best party ever for time travelers. Like every time traveler through all of history is going to want to be at this party. And, you know, we're going to have cake and stuff for them, you know, presents and, you know, everyone get out the word as much as you can. We have to make sure that this message, you know, it might, it might be thousands of years or millions of years before time travel was invented. So, we have to maybe like carve this message on titanium plates with diamond saws if you if you've got them and uh, just uh, do everything we can to make sure time travelers that this message uh, lasts until the time travelers uh, can get it so that uh, you know so that they all come visit us. But uh, you know I think that the time and place passed and, and no time travelers actually showed up. But it was a it was a good idea. There was something kind of like that in the movie Twelve Monkeys, which is one of my favorite time travel movies. This is about it's um, in the future and a virus has wiped out humanity for the most part. And there are just a few survivors still in bunkers underground. And so uh, and so they're sending this guy back in time to before the virus struck uh, to try to figure out what happened. And he's so, so he's supposed to sort of communicate with his bosses in the future by leaving messages on this random answering machine. And it turns out that in the future, you know, this this virus is going to hit and whoever owns this answering machine is never going to get around to erasing the messages on it so that any messages left on it will eventually uh, find their way into the hands of, uh, you know, these bosses in the future. It's it's also one of the best visual depictions of uh, post-apocalyptic uh, world that I've ever seen on film. I mean, because, uh, you know, uh, in the future that they come from, it, it's all already, you know, humanity has already been almost entirely wiped out. And um, so when they go above ground and, and, you know, the world's just like completely bleak and covered with snow and like the animals have sort of taken over and stuff and they send them out there in like a special suit to like tr to collect some samples. Uh, but like, you know, he sees like these wild, you know, these wild animals, uh, you know, just walking around in the city and it's just like, it looks really, really uh, creepy and, uh, and, but just visually really interesting. Another one of my favorite time travel movies was this one called Millennium. Uh, this was based on a, a short story by John Barley called Air Raid. In this one, it's in the future, and uh, the environment is so badly polluted that everybody is has become sterile. And so if they're going to continue the human race, they need to travel into the past and get healthier people from the past. And so what they do is they uh, travel back in time and appear on airplanes that they know from history are going to crash and sort of rescue all the people off the planes and replace them all with dead clone bodies so that when the wreckage is discovered, people won't suspect anything. And of course, you know, it's impossible to make everything match exactly. 
and the bigger the discrepancy between what actually happened and what the operatives are able to pull off, uh, the greater is the time quake, these sort of earthquake kind of things that ripple through time and are destroying the future. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good idea. Um, and I remember, I like some of the little details they had about the future, like, because a woman that ends up having to go back in time to, like, deal with one of these guys in the present, right? And and when, when she's in the past, she has to, like, smoke all the time because in the future, the, the environment is so bad that, like, you know, going back into the past, you know, her, her lungs would just, it would be like a system shock for her to actually breathe such clean air or something. I was browsing through Wikipedia here, and I realized that, um, actually, there's a there's another movie that sort of deals with that same premise as Millennium. Um the movie Free Jack, um, you know, with uh, what, Emilio Estevez, I think, uh, but it's actually based on a Robert Sheckley uh, story. And, and in that in that future, uh, time travel is possible, and, and they go back in time to snatch people before the moment of their death. But in in that, they they use the new bodies as hosts for their own minds. Um, so like sort of there's the consciousness transfer thing happening, but they they just grab actual people from the past instead of like building new bodies or whatever. Um, oh yeah, so it's a it, it was based on a, a novel by Sheckley called Im- Immortality Inc. Um, 1959. So I, I don't know if um, I don't know if Varley was uh, just consciously uh, tipping his hat to uh, Sheckley or if he just sort of independently came up with the, the idea himself. But uh, yeah, I mean, Millennium was a much better movie than Free Jack anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, I thought we, we might mention that, you know, how, how Stephen Hawking had talked about how because of the fact that we haven't seen any time travelers from the future, then that probably means that they don't exist. I mean, of course, they could be hiding among us, and, and but it just seems unlikely that time travelers could actually come back in time and, and never and, and never in the history of the world ha, ha, has a time traveler not, you know, revealed himself to be a time traveler, you know? Yeah, I mean, there, there was this kind of interesting idea that I heard attributed to Larry Niven, um, which was basically that maybe in any timeline where time travel is possible, people just start time traveling and create paradoxes and tear holes in the fabric of the space-time continuum, etc., and so, so that universe ceases to exist. And so sort of by a process of natural selection, every universe in which time travel would be discovered, that those universes are destroyed and sort of pruned away from the multiverse. And so to everyone who lives in a universe that actually exists, it seems that time travel is impossible and doesn't happen. But that's only because we're in a timeline in which time travel will never be discovered. And if we weren't, we wouldn't be here anymore. Yeah, but you know, speaking of uh, of, the, of that meme you were talking about, where the guy was, he he wanted all the time travelers to show up at the same time. It's like that just reminded me of how, like in in, in almost every every movie that has time travel in it, you know, uh, the, the the time traveler goes back in time and he finds himself uh, confronted with the possibility that he's in the past and and he just grabs someone on the street. It's like, what date is it? What's the date? And they tell him the date. He's like, no, the year. What year? Like, as if that doesn't completely, you know, blow your cover there. It's like, dude, find a newspaper, you know. <laughs> There's like all, I mean, like, you know, assuming you're in a time when there are newspapers, obviously. But, I mean, um, if you're in a time when there aren't newspapers handy, you know, like, surely there are ways of finding out what year it is other than just blurting out into a random stranger on the street, you know, like, what year is it? Because then that's going to get you committed or something. No, I mean, and you're right that time travelers seem to always do that. But it seems like maybe we're making an assumption that that's never happened. I mean, maybe someone listening to this now, you know, someone once, I mean, think back, like maybe someone once came up to you and just grabbed you and said, what's the date? And you told them and they're like, no, the year, what year? And until so you just told them the year and, and you just kind of, you know, you didn't think much of it. You just thought they were crazy or they just really wanted to know the year or something. But, um, but you know, that might've been a time traveler. And so, so yeah, so everyone just think back over your lives and think if anything like that has ever happened to you. And if it has, you know, uh, email us at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com. And, you know, maybe we can uh, set up an interview with, a, with an actual time traveler. Yeah, actually, somebody was telling me that, um, that there's, there's a day, I think, maybe coming up um, that where everybody's supposed to dress in period garb and, like, you know, pretend like you're a time traveler. And, and so I guess, that's, I guess that's what you would do on that day. You would say that to people and, and you know, just sort of freak them out by, uh, you know, making them think you're a time traveler or something. But, you know, so that's the problem, though. It's like, you know, there could just be people who are lying. And that doesn't prove that they're time travelers just because they ask you what the, what year it is. Uh, yeah, so another another um, really interesting uh, time travel movie, which actually is one of my favorite movies, is uh, Donnie Darko, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. And uh, you know that movie is just like it's like really really complicated. And I mean, like, like I, I couldn't begin to actually describe the plot of it. Yeah, I mean, let's see. I mean, Donnie Darko is a high school student, and he sort of has these episodes in which he's visited by a sinister looking rabbit from the future named Frank, who 
delivers sort of cryptic, disturbing messages. And then Donnie's bedroom is destroyed by a jet engine that seems to have fallen off of an airplane. But uh, there doesn't seem to have actually been an airplane over his house at the time. And he discovers a book in the school library called The Philosophy of Time Travel, which he thinks sort of um, is the key to figuring out what's going on. It was funny, though, with, with Donnie Darko, because, you know, the first time I saw that was at um, Jim Gunn's Center for the Study of Science Fiction at the University of Kansas. And there was this other student there, Terry, and he had just like a real talent for just uh, sort of crystallizing what a story was about or should be about. And so we watched uh, Donnie Darko and <laughs> and it got to the end. And, and I was kind of like, wow, that was a really cool movie, but I'm not convinced it made any sense at all. And Terry was like, well, no, I, th I think I got it. And he sort of explains it. And his explanation was brilliant. And we're all like, wow, that actually, that makes perfect sense, huh? And then a couple of years, a couple of years ago, I, uh, I got the DVD and I watched the director commentary. And the, you know, the writer director sort of, he tries to explain the movie. And I sort of listened to that and I was kind of like, oh, huh? Actually, Terry's explanation was way better than that. Yeah, never do that. Like, I, I think, I, I think uh, you should know better by now. But I mean, when you were maybe you were younger, but um, like, yeah, don't don't listen to directors explain their movies. It, uh, it's it's usually a bad thing. They usually say something stupid that ruins it further from you know what you what you thought. But actually, speaking of which, I, I've heard um, I haven't seen it myself because I've been warned against it. But apparently, you should not watch the director's cut of Donnie Darko. Did you see that, or are you are you you one of the people that warned me against it? Yeah, so uh, so apparently don't watch the special features either, according to Dave, because uh, the director ruins it. But um, don't watch the director's cut. Just watch the theatrical cut. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk about Back to the Future after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, Blackout by Connie Willis. Oxford in 2060 is a chaotic place. Scores of time-traveling historians are being sent into the past. Michael Davies is prepping to go to Pearl Harbor. Maropi Ward is coping with a bunch of bratty 1940 evacuees and trying to talk her thesis advisor, Mr. Dunworthy, into letting her go to VE Day. Polly Churchill's next assignment will be as a shop girl in the middle of London's Blitz. But now, the time travel lab is suddenly canceling assignments for no apparent reason, and switching around everyone's schedules. And when Michael, Marupi, and Polly finally get to World War II, things just get worse. For there they face air raids, blackouts, unexploded bombs, dive-bombing stukas, rationing shrapnel, V1s, and two of the most incorrigible children in all of history. To say nothing of a growing feeling that not only their assignments, but the war and history itself are spiraling out of control. Because suddenly the once reliable mechanisms of time travel are showing significant glitches, and our heroes are beginning to question their most firmly held belief that no historian can possibly change the past. An unabridged recording of Blackout by Connie Willis, narrated by Katherine Kelgren, available now from Brilliance Audio and wherever audiobooks are sold. And we're back. Okay, so yeah, so now we're going to talk a little bit about Back to the Future. Um, you know, this is the 25th anniversary of Back to the Future, so it's been like back in movie theaters and people have been talking about it and stuff. Uh, this is just one of my favorite movies. I've probably seen it 20 or 30 times, something like that. And uh, I mean, I... I basically know the whole thing by heart i don't know john was this uh was this something that you uh watched a lot as a kid too uh, i don't think i saw it in the theaters but you know in the early days of uh vhs you know you had the vcr at home but you know you know you, you just rent movies generally because the to buy the buy the movies it was very expensive and so um i remember as a kid we actually owned back to the future it was that uh, it was like that epic you know that um you know we we owned it even though it probably cost like a hundred bucks or something um and you know so i actually watched a lot as a kid uh, because of that yeah and i mean and this is a movie that i watched so much as a kid that i can pretty much remember everything that i thought about it as a kid you know like what i thought of every scene and you know one thing that, that strikes me thinking back on it now is just how real the movie seemed to me when i was a kid like uh 
like the flux capacitor when um you know when doc brown holds up his diagram of how the of the flux capacitor that he had this vision of i was just like wow you know i could i could remember actually asking my dad like is is, is that is that real could you actually build a flux capacitor is, is somebody working on that you know and and he's just like no dave's dad by the way is a is a is a physicist an, an eminent physicist so yeah i'm sure he didn't put much stock in the flux capacitor idea yeah, but like speaking of things that are impossible, I mean, one thing that's always bugged me about the movie, though, is the climax. Um, you know, at the climax, Marty has his time machine car and it has sort of a hook coming out of the top and he has to drive it at exactly 88 miles an hour and have the hook contact this uh, electrified cable, which uh, is only going to be electrified by a bolt of lightning that's going to strike at a particular time. And so what happens is that, you know, um, Doc Brown has uh, figured everything out and he's set up a... Um, uh, an alarm clock on the dashboard and marty's supposed to floor it as soon as this alarm clock goes off but then the alarm clock goes off and the car stalls and so marty like struggles for a minute or something to um to get the car started and then he floors it but then it, it, that just bugs me so much like because i mean doc brown is is crazy but if there's anything i trust it's in his ability to do math right you know and so if marty doesn't floor it at exactly when doc said he was supposed to i don't see how he can possibly hit the thing at the right time I don't know. I mean, there's so much stuff in those movies that uh, you just kind of have to go with. But, but that, that's one and that one that, that really bugs me. And it's always seemed like, why do they set it up so that he has to hit the cable at exactly the right moment? I mean, that's freaking impossible. What they should just do, right, is, is just get like a really, really, really long extension cable and run that into the flux capacitor. And then he just has to be going at 88 miles an hour when the lightning hits and he's good. He doesn't have to worry about hitting the cable at exactly the right time, too. I always liked the, uh, uh, you know, when he goes in, he, he has to appear, he has to like appear to his uh, his dad um, to try to convince him to do something. And so he, he like puts headphones on his dad's, uh, over his dad's ears while he's sleeping. And, and he just like plays some like some rock music or whatever from the future. And it's just like, it's like so, it's so loud and discordant to his dad that he's just like, he thinks he, he it's like an attack to him, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and does, does he wear like a Darth Vader mask or something? Well, yeah, I mean, he's wearing, like, the, the mask with his radiation suit. But, yeah, I've always sort of wondered about that because, I mean, because, yeah, it's a great, funny scene. But then you sort of wonder, like, does his dad to this day still think he was visited by an alien who wanted him to take Lorraine to the dance? Uh, and, like, what did his dad think, like, when Star Trek came out and Star Wars and stuff? You know, because cause Marty introduces himself as Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan. So, I don't know, I guess maybe his dad uh, is just, like, really messed up. You know, he's like still in therapy over that or something. I don't know, but it was it was funny actually. I, I came across this this uh, thing in Wikipedia about uh, about one of the uh, producers. Here, I'll, I'll just read this. It says uh, executive Sidney Scheinberg made some suggestions to the script, changing Marty's mother's name from Meg to Lorraine, the name of his wife, actress Lorraine Gary, and to replace Brown's pet chimpanzee with a dog. Scheinberg wanted the title changed to Spaceman from Pluto. Convinced no successful film ever had future in the title, he suggested Marty introduce himself as Darth Vader from Planet Pluto while dressed as an alien, forcing his dad to ask out his mom rather than the Planet Vulcan, and that the farmer's son's comic book be titled Spaceman from Pluto rather than Space Zombies from Pluto. Spielberg dictated a memo back to Scheinberg, wherein Spielberg convinced him they thought his title was just a joke, thus embarrassing him into dropping the idea. Well, I mean, like Back to the Future, I mean, that's like, I mean, God, that's like a perfect title. Because, like, you know, Back to the Future is like, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's just, that's a perfect time travel title. I mean, geez. There's also this kind of kind of weird thing. Uh, it says, originally Marty was a video pirate. The time machine was a refrigerator. And she needed to use the power of an atomic explosion at the Nevada test site to return home. Zemeckis was, quote, concerned that kids would accidentally lock themselves in refrigerators. And the original climax was deemed too expensive. Um, actually, yeah, I, I just wanted to, you know, mention the, in, in, in the sequel, in Back to the Future Part 2, I, uh, it has a plot line that I always thought would be, uh, I always thought it would be very prevalent if time travel were possible, but, um, you know, the antagonist in the movie, this guy Biff, uh, in the future, he, uh, he steals the time machine so that he can, um, he can give a sports almanac to himself in the past, and then thus, uh, he'll be able to win millions of dollars gambling or whatever, you know, so people would do stuff like that, just like, oh, well, you know, this is an easy way to, to get rich, so let me do that. Although, I mean, that's one of those moments in the movies that's always really bugged me, too, because what happens is, yeah, like, um, Marty and Doc are in the future, and old Biff steals the time machine and goes back to 1955 and gives the sports almanac to a younger version of himself and then returns to the future, and then 
Marty and Doc get back in the time machine, and then they travel back to 1985 and find that everything's different because Biff has had this sports almanac and has uh, made all this money betting since 1955. I mean, and there are so many like problems with the time travel stuff in these movies, but, but this just seems like maybe the most egregious one. Because if old Biff had gone back to 1955 and given himself a sports almanac, then when he went back to the future, to, to 2015, it wouldn't be the future he had departed from. It would be the future that resulted from himself having the sports almanac in 1955. And so Marty and Doc in the future in 2015 would never get their time machine back. And it just seems like such a big plot hole in that movie. And it's particularly bad because in like virtually the next scene, they explain that time travel works in such a way as to make the entire plot of this movie impossible. So apparently there was a Back to the Future animated series. Did you know about that? No. Yeah, apparently uh, it lasted two seasons and it was on CBS. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's weird. It, I'm looking at it on Wikipedia and it's like it, it, it looks really, really lame. But I mean, you know, it, it, uh, it takes place like after the conclusion of Back to the Future 3. Because, uh, you know, I just saw that uh, Telltale Games is doing a Back to the Future game, it's the, which, and it's the same thing, you know, it takes place after Back to the Future 3. Telltale Games made the, um, the Tales of Monkey Island uh, adventure game. There's also actually this really cool mod I was just watching a video of. Uh, this is a mod for the Crisis engine. You know, it's a game, uh, Crisis, uh, C-R-Y-S-I-S. And this is a, a mod that allows you to drive the DeLorean from Back to the Future and sort of make jumps in time with it. And it looks it looks exactly like in the movies. And uh, and one of the cool things you can do is it looks like you can set the time machine, you know, to jump like a minute into the future, like they do in the movie. And then you can get it going up to 88 miles an hour and then jump out and then watch as it disappears and the, the sort of tire tracks of flames go off into the distance. And then you can run over and, you know, wait a minute and then watch as the car appears again. But did you, uh, when, when Back to the Future 2 came out, did you ever believe that hoverboards were real? Because that was a... Um, that was an urban legend that was going around. I remember my friend Ross from camp telling me that. He's like, oh, no, dude, I saw it on TV. The hoverboards are real, but they're so dangerous they won't sell them, but they're real. But I don't know. They turned out to be not real. They were real cool, though. You know, those I, I, I remember those vividly. That was, like, that, that was totally awesome as a little kid to see those things on TV, you know, in, in the movie. Have you ever thought about the fact that Back to the Future 2 takes place in 2015? That's like five years from now. And they have hoverboards and bionics and weather control and all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, well, that's one of the depressing things about time travel stories is that, like, when when the time travel eventually catches up with the present, and then like you go back and you read these stories, and you're like, huh, wow, I, I bet this I bet this year seemed really plausible when they wrote this, you know? And it's like, oh, and we're so far off, you know? Um, it, and that seems to be like always the case. I mean, or maybe it's just that um, the the stories that didn't predict it far enough in the future uh, have been forgotten. But it seems like. Um, it's usually the case that they just didn't predict um, or they predicted too much and we did, and we never lived up to it. You know, um, it's not as often that we read one of these old time travel stories and it's like, oh, well, we we did all that stuff years ago. Well, but it seems like to it, it's it's often this just really discordant mix of super advanced stuff that we can't even imagine having and really old stuff that nobody would even think of using anymore. So you'll have like cold fusion, but they still use typewriters or. They have faster than light drives, but they still use audio cassettes, stuff like that. That dude, that that's like something that that I run into uh, time and time again. Like when I'm looking when I'm looking for stories for reprints. Like if I find a story that's like good, but then it has like something with a cassette tape in it or whatever. Like and they're using that in the future as a, some as a medium for storing data. It's just like God, that this throws me out of the story so much. And I mean, I've actually considered like, well. I mean, is it fair for me to, like, ask the author to change that? I mean, just, like, change it to something that doesn't use the word tape, okay? It's like, because, like, you know, they, cause, like, they just took tape and they added some other word in front of it to make it futuristic tape, you know? But it's like, change the word tape and then just leave everything else. That's fine. But, I mean, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, science fiction is, is a genre that sort of can age badly because of that. And, um, I mean, there's nothing you can do except, uh, uh, you know, try to keep that in mind when you're writing your stories, Okay, and just to wrap things up, I was going to read a few lines from one of my favorite books. This is The Anubis Gates by Tim Powers. And at this part here, our, our hero, uh, Brendan Doyle, who's a professor in the 20th century, uh, was hired to be a tour guide on a time travel expedition back to London in 1810. And uh, he got kidnapped, and, and the time travelers that he was with uh, have gone back to the future, and he's trapped in the past. 
And so as he's walking down the street, not sure what he's going to do, he hears somebody whistling, and it says, He froze, and his eyes widened in shock. It was Yesterday, the Beatles song by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. For a moment he just stood there, stunned, like Robinson Crusoe, staring at the footprint in the sand. Then he was running back. Hey! he yelled when he was below the little bridge, though there was nobody on it now. Hey, come back! I'm from the 20th century, too! A couple of passers-by were giving him the warily entertained look people save for street lunatics, but nobody peered down from the rooftop level. Damn it! Doyle yelled despairingly. Coca-Cola! Clint Eastwood! Cadillac! He ran into the building and blundered his way upstairs and even managed to find and open the roof door, but there was no one inside up there. He crossed the little bridge and then descended through the other building, panting, but singing yesterday as loudly as he could and shouting the lyrics down all cross corridors. He drew many complaints, but didn't get anyone who seemed to know what the song was. I'll give you a place to hide away, mate, shouted one furious old man. All right, well, that was our episode. Uh, Be sure to check back in two weeks for our next episode, and uh, thanks for listening. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9 and is brought to you by Brilliance Audio. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit io9.com slash tag slash geek's guide. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.